Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Game Talk Radio. I'm Greg, and uh, we're just going to hit it running because I got a bunch of stories I want to talk about today. But the first one that came up, uh, this came up a couple days ago, was uh, of the apparent revival and return of the Commodore 64. So, <laughs> obviously we had news about the Atari box last week. NES Classic, Super Nintendo Classic just came out last Friday. Nostalgia's hot right now. As we all know, it has been for a while. And the latest company to dive in on this is a is a company called Retro Game uh Retro Game Company, I think it's called. <laughs> it's really strange. Let me let me find a look at the exact one here. Um it's uh well, it doesn't matter. Okay. So they've already got concept art for the box. It's a mini version of the Commodore 64, which uh, if you don't know what that is, the Commodore 64 was like a hybrid home computer game console that came out like in the 80s. And the system itself was just a big keyboard, a big fat keyboard, and you could plug in controllers into it, games plugged in the back. Uh, it had just normal AV out to your TV, or you could get a monitor for it. We actually just had a Commodore 64 mega bundle in the store that we sold recently it had the monitor and everything had a disc drive with it so you could get floppy games on it if you wanted to and so on and so forth so obviously the timing seems about perfect for something like this with all the other things going on right now this one however like the atari box this makes me very nervous so i don't know who bought the rights to the commodore name but it's not the same company that created the commodore 64 back in the day it seems to be some new company seemed to buy the naming rights to it and is now making products using that name so uh, the first thing that really struck me as worrisome is that it's an indie there's an indiegogo campaign for another item called the 64 which is uh basically they want to make a full-fledged commodore 64 system modern day and then the the commodore 64 mini was just kind of like an afterthought or maybe that was something else that's not being funded but I look at the Indiegogo campaign here, and it raised $100,000 from 434 backers. And the, the thing that a lot of people don't know about Indiegogo is that you don't have to have a working prototype to put an Indiegogo campaign into motion. Like Kickstarter, you have to have a working prototype of any sort of hardware. So it kind of protects people that way. So you can't create vape, what they call vaporware, where you're just creating an idea and then the idea never comes to fruition. You still get boned out of your money and there's nothing you can do. Indiegogo does not have that same sort of thing. A lot of companies go to Indiegogo. One, they use it because of its, its global uh, availability to spread globally. Uh, and then a lot of other people will go there because they know they have a higher chance of being able to scam people. It's Indiegogo, unfortunately, is the worst for crowdfunding when it comes to scammers and stuff. So that's the first thing that kind of irked me about this, um, because I feel like this is another one of those things that people are just trying to attach to. So I started to look at the Indiegogo campaign a little bit further, and there is a little tab you can you can click on to say more about the company. So the 64 is the profile that's created this. Uh, that created the 64 Indiegogo campaign. They've only had one campaign. They've made no comments. They've made no contributions to any other projects. They have not verified their account with any other social networks. They have no picture. They have no About Me page. That's it. But they do have a few links to their Twitter, which has 897 followers, and they joined in March of 2016. So a year and a half 
they created this account or bought this account from someone else who created it. And in that year and a half, while working on new things, they've done nothing to build the brand. 897 followers is is not very impressive for a company, especially one with the name power like that. And I'm not here to try to crap on that company. I mean, if they're doing the right thing and they're making a really cool device, I'm all for it. You know, I'm not trying to, you know, but we have to be smart consumers too, because there's a lot of companies popping up like this that make me very, very nervous. So anyway, we're talking about two different things. The Commodore Mini is a plug and play device that'll have USB ports and HDMI out. So the USB ports, you can plug in a normal keyboard if you want to have a full size keyboard. Apparently, it's going to even have the option to still do basic programming. So on paper, the Commodore Mini just sounds awesome. I mean, I, I like where they're going with it. It's called, excuse me, Retro Games LTD is the name of the company. Uh, let's see if we can find some more info on them. But what what kind of what kind of bugs me about that is that we still I just don't see any tangible, you know, <clears throat> there I just I'm not I'm not seeing anything physical that we can you know put our stamp on and and um, now more about the Commodore Mini since I just kind of went on a little rant about the 64, which I think is unfortunately vaporwave. They say it's supposed to come out next year sometime, but that's how all these campaigns go. They get all the money. They work on it for a year. They can't get it into production because creating consoles and computers is not easy or everybody would do it. And then they, they disappear and they, they, they fade away. So the, uh, the counter 64 is going to come with 60 games preloaded on it. Uh, and then because it's USB, I'm just going to safely assume that if you're not able to add your own games, it'll just let you, uh, modders will figure it out in about five seconds. Um, so I just want to kind of read a little bit about this. Um, you'll be getting a console that contains 64 of the original Commodore 64 gaming titles, including Impossible Mission and California Games. There's a whole bunch of pictures here, too, of all the other ones. Like, uh, let's go through a quick list here. Um, none of these look familiar to me at all, either. I was never a Commodore guy, but being a, you know, owning a used game store and buying and selling a lot of these, like, you'd think that I'd see a lot more of these, but you don't. Uh, Pit Stop 2, Paradroid, Cybernoid 1 and 2, Fourth Dimension, Creatures, uh, Wanted, Manty Mole, <laughs> Monty on the Run, uh, winter games, world games, it all speedball two, speedball. <laughs> These look pretty awful. So I don't know how they got the rights to obviously, you know, a lot of the big name games that people remember still might have license holders and they couldn't get them cheap enough. So there's always that. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. It, uh, it, it worries me a little bit, you know what and because the things had a massive press push so you're seeing articles about it on maxim you're seeing articles on you know nerdist and GameSpot, and everyone's everyone's really you know putting a lot of work into this thing but until we actually see it working and like maybe at a trade show or at like e3 or something i don't know uh, i'm also trying to figure out when they said it was going to come out but i don't see that anywhere on here uh so they just kind of be typically they're just it looks like they're just saying it's coming out sometime you know they're working on it uh let's see i'm looking through this article real quick too um it's gonna cost 69.99 so that's ten dollars cheaper than the super nintendo classic ten dollars more than the nes classic uh i I guess that's price points about right I i don't know what makes this thing more expensive than a super nintendo classic would be or excuse me that an nes classic would be it comes i believe with one joystick and then the keyboard thing here uh i guess there's more to it with the keyboard i don't keyboards are cheap though but uh yeah so i don't know um it has flash memory expandability uh they're gonna be able to add their own 64 games just said 
unfortunately, this article says, unfortunately, while the likes of Super Mario Bros. and Zelda keep gamers returning to the Nintendo Classic, we just don't see much value in the game collection that the 64 is set to deliver. Yeah, that's about how I feel. Uh, the, even if you were a <clears throat> even if you were a huge N64 fan, or excuse me, Commodore 64 fan, whoo, even if you were a huge Commodore 64 fan, none of these games, I don't think, would be the ones you were looking for, which is weird. Uh, and then... So, so this is this is what gained all the publicity, right? So, it was the sixty, the Commodore sixty four Mini was the one that everyone was like, "Holy crap, the Commodore sixty four is coming back, baby!" And even one of the guys I work with, Dom, he even was like, "Holy crap! Like, can you believe they're making it? I'm buying that. I might buy two. Like, that's what he said." And I was like, "Okay." And then I look into the company that's making it, and I look into what else they're trying to do with this full fledged, the sixty four Commodore sixty four computer, and it kind of seems very scamish to me. Um, so I watched the, uh, video of it, which is one minute long. So the Indiegogo campaign video is one minute long. Uh, I recognize the song that's playing because it's played at my store a bunch of times. I just can't think of what game it is. Uh, they have a computer screen just reading text and it's a, you know, it's a computer synthesized voice reading the text. And it's just saying, you know, the, a modern reimagining of the Commodore 64 and, you know, it's showing pieces, which the pictures look like they could be real, but they could be 3d renders that are done really well too. You know, it's not like there's pictures of everyone picking it up and shaking it around. It's just, you know, it's just like there, uh, on a white background, perfectly perfect. Like they should be. Um, so I'm reading some of the comments here. Uh, and then all of a sudden in the, in the, in the 64, they're talking about, how it's going to also come with the the 64 SX, which is like a handheld version that'll allow the 64 computer to go. So I don't, is that going to stream the 64 or is that going to be included in the box? And if it is, is it, is it just like another mini computer that can run the six Commodore 64 games on it? So a lot of questions still unanswered here <clears throat> for the Indiegogo campaign to be finished. Uh, there's a lot of people leaving comments and I, I, I look at all these people and I'm very sad. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm very sad because I have a feeling that these people are going to lose all their money. Uh, let's see here. So the to get the cheapest one was $150. That was the computer console version of the 64. $170 for the handheld version, and I'm guessing somewhere around double that for both. Uh, $220 got you the console plus a cartridge game. $270 got you a console plus a cartridge plus a joystick. $650 gets you the whole package. The computer version... Uh, Oh wow! Okay, hold on. I'm seeing other things here now. Oh boy, this this is probably not good. So I think this has been in. I think this Indiegogo campaign started a while ago, actually, because um, some of these things were saying estimated delivery of December 2016 uh, for the original home console version, which did not come out, and then the handheld version was supposed to be April of 2017, which is six months ago, and then the the whole package was estimated to be April of 2017. So this thing's already been pushed back a bunch. Uh, there was a thousand dollars you could pay for the Chrome version, an ultra limited Chrome edition of the Commodore 64, only 50 pieces, $2,000 to get your name on the PCB board. Uh, okay. 2,800, the only scale model, the one and only scale model of the 64 computer console version modeled by artist Wayne Malton and signed by the 64 team. This is the only one in the world for $2,800. Sounds like an unbelievable ripoff to me. Um, I'm going to look at some of the updates on this thing because this, this goes to a larger point, uh, a, d a little bit about the video I did about Atari last week, but the Commodore 64 one, this one looks shadier. The mini, the mini 64 actually seems like a plausible idea. 
what I'm worried is that they were working on the com the 64 home computer and then they're going to turn it into the Commodore 64 mini. And that's what you're going to get and be like, oh, well, we, we promised you you'd get a comp you know 64 computer. This is the 64. And ugh, it, it's kind of like um, what what I was talking about with the Atari guy who did a couple go uh, Indiegogos where he started off with like this Atari band or, or wristband thing and then it turned into the Minecraft band and it was what people got what they didn't even pay for. They wanted a micro PC on a USB stick and they ended up getting a Minecraft looking USB stick on their wrist, which, you know, if people want to wear a USB stick on their wrist, I mean, maybe it's their fault. <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay. So let's see. This says Indiegogo backers and pre-orders um, the 28th September update number two. Uh, let's see. I want to see the first update first. Um, okay. We've always, we're always keen to keep backers informed of the latest developments here at the 64 HQ. We hope that today's update makes you happy. If you have any questions after reading this exciting announcement, know that we're happy to communicate. Ask away. Most of you will know that we didn't reach our original target for Indiegogo funding, but that has never stopped us from making progress. We've always been determined not to let a single backer down, so we carried on working hard, sat down at the table, and came up with a new plan. We managed to find a global business partner who would help us deliver the console to backers and to the retail market. Part of the new plan was conceiving more versions of the 64, necessitating an alteration to our original timeline and business plan. Yeah, here we go. Here are the excuses. In conversations with retailers, it has become clear that the wider retail market is demanding the Commodore 64 Mini more so than our full-size design. Yeah, duh. Uh, putting the Mini model first in production timeline will mean that not only will they have the capital to deliver to those backers and pre-order customers that have supported us, but we'll also give them far more than the product they originally paid for. Oh, that's what we call spin, ladies and gentlemen. They just spin. They just spun the fact that their original project, the 64, is now being overshadowed by the Commodore 64 Mini, which is actually getting positive press. And they've said, okay, sorry, Commodore 64 full. We're putting you uh, to the <laughs> out to the woodshed while we finish the mini first because that's actually going to make us money. Anyway, carrying on. To show our thanks to those who have supported us and to those of kind patience and put up with the time scales which have admittedly been longer than anticipated, we'd like to make the following announcement. Everyone who backed the original Indiegogo campaign by backing a console or pre-ordered a console from our website prior to today will not only get their full-size C64 but also a special limited edition C64 mini console set. So now they're basically saying if you if you backed our big pile of junk big computer we're going to give you a the small pile of junk for free <laughs> um this bonus gift will consist of the c64 mini a classic styled usb joystick special limited edition packaging featuring artwork by david rowe uh, the special edition slipcover artwork has been commissioned by us from the legendary retro games cover artist david rowe um okay so well i'm not a fan of his art but I'm not saying it's a bad artist because I'm not a good artist. I can't say that. But anyway, uh, so our aim is to deliver the Commodore 64 mini console set to Indiegogo backers and pre-order supporters in time for Christmas 2017. At this stage, we are still completing and testing the firmware, so we must stop short of guaranteeing this date. If we do miss it, we will deliver as early in the new year as possible. <laughs> they don't even have faith that they're going to hit the holiday season, so they're already making excuses for it. Um, anyway, uh, we feel as a team that honesty is better than broken promises. Regardless, we assure you, you will be given this bonus gift before commencement of retail sales. So they are saying that they're going to give it to the people who backed the project before it goes on sale. What a nice thing to do for the people that you ripped off on this other computer. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. So now part two of the update. Uh, once the global launch of the Commodore 64 Mini has been completed, we will switch our focus back to the full-size keyboard model of the Commodore 64, which, by the way, they've already received $100,000 for. 
with our aim to deliver to you all in early 2018 we appreciate that any delay from the original estimate is disappointing but we hope the c64 mini will keep your thumbs twiddling until then uh what about those who backed the tier for pre-order the handheld version we are still very much uh we, we very much still intend to create the handheld version of the console we believe it will be amazing but retail demands have meant that to ensure delivery of all unit types the handheld must has been pushed far back in the production timeline so the handheld version is after the full-size computer version which is after the mini version which might not even be this year so i can definitely see where the backers are getting nervous at this point which is funny because i never even heard of the full-size c64 system coming out until this so they obviously didn't do a very good job marketing that um let's see Anyone who backed the handheld version or pre-ordered it prior to today will instead be given both the C64 Mini and a full-size C64 plus bonus goodies. So now what they're saying is since the handheld one's so far away, we're just going to give you both of the other things that you didn't want. <laughs> we're going to give you those instead. <laughs> oh, man. That really sucks. I feel really bad. I'm going to kind of roll down in some of these updates, though, because I want to go back. I want to go back and see. Uh... Okay, they've had a lot of updates um in september so they seem to at least be communicating which is good so a lot in september uh, september 15th september 8th you know that's all good um august 25th they seem to be doing regular updates which i will give them credit for that's something uh let's see here so then we go on back to August 11th. I mean, these guys are every week they're doing an update. So that's that's at least they have the decency to string us along. <laughs> and they're stringing us along instead of just being silent about it. <laughs> uh, okay, so production has started. The first CADs have been sent to China. And the button has been pressed. That is uh, July 7th. Uh, man, I really want to get to the beginning of this. Where can I just go to the front? But they're 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 pretty consistently posting every week or every other week for updates. That's pretty cool. Uh, let's see here. They're showing some of the plastic off back in May. Oh man, this is gonna get good. This is gonna get good. I wish you could just go all the way to the beginning of the updates. April twenty eighth. Uh, let's see. They want to share what they've secretly been doing. We're now working with a major international distributor and manufacturer. With them coming on board to provide part of the 64 venture with these discussions as a result of customer feedback market research and industry sector trends we have re-envisioned our product range to center around the 64 mini <laughs> so they actually did this back in april they've decided to uh let's see um this is fantastic news for the product in particular the backers of the indiegogo campaign as we fell short of our campaign funding target which frustratingly slowed our progress well i'm glad that you still took everybody's money even though you didn't have enough money to finish the product i mean that's really that's really classy Anyway, I'm done looking up these Jagaloons. So um, that's the Commodore 64. Uh, so the Mini is most likely going to come out. If I had to guess, the Mini will come out, uh, and it will be what they promise, 64 preloaded games, USB, ability to add other things, plug in your TV, sell it for 70 bucks. That all seems totally plausible to me. Unfortunately, the people who pre-ordered the C64 home computer system, they're going to get the Mini, and that's probably all they'll get. I just can't see the mini selling well enough to fund a full, a full fledged computer system like that. In fact, I don't even know why they did it because even when they started this Kickstarter, like a year and a half, two years ago, they were doing things like 
the Atari flashbacks and the Sega Genesis plug and plays. So plug and plays were really hot a couple years ago. Why they didn't just do a plug and play back then would have made more sense to me. But now that it's getting steam press wise, they're probably getting a, an influx of capital from people who are backing this thing without knowing their history. So I guess that was more what I want to do is I want to kind of throw that out there and get to like the meat and potatoes of this company. I do believe the Commodore 64 mini will come out. I think that's, that actually was a good idea that that will sell. Um, but will it sell as better than an Atari flashback at that price? Eh, I, I don't think that it has any more nostalgic factor than the Atari flashback has. So I don't see why it would do better than that or what it offers better than that. Um, the C64 was definitely obscure. It might've still been the best selling home video game console of all time, but it's still obscure compared to the other systems at the time, like the master system, even the NES and even the Ataris at that point. Um, but yeah, so hopefully that's, uh, <laughs> hopefully that's not that big of a deal. Uh, and it does come out. I hope all the backers get everything they want. I just don't unfortunately see it. And that makes me very sad. Sorry, Commodore fans. And then, uh, so otherwise then moving on, we had, uh, let's see here. This was a little story. This is a little strange. Um, it's not going to take very long because it's not really anything news, new news. Um, but Nintendo last week, uh, updated their user agreement to restrict live streaming games for YouTube's YouTubers, excuse me, in Nintendo's partners program. So Nintendo, if you don't know, has always been, I don't know, really weird about how they do how they handle content creators and monetization. So Nintendo uh, would put um, copyright claims on all videos of their games that people were trying to monetize so that the people making the videos couldn't monetize. Nintendo got all that, which again is an argument for a different day, whether you believe that's okay or not, or if you believe that Let's Play should be for you, so all that sort of stuff. But aside from that, that's how Nintendo did it. But then they had something you could do, you could sign up for called the Nintendo's Partner Program. And Nintendo's Partner Program would allow you to make some of the money that Nintendo's going to make off of that. So basically what it was, was Nintendo decided to come in the middle and be like, hey, YouTube's making money on ads. Guy playing the game's making money on ads. Nintendo, who makes the game, isn't making money on ads. Let's jump in and cut ourselves a piece of the pie, which I, I don't know. I guess that's fair. I mean, it's their product. I don't know. It's an argument I'd have to think about for a long time because it's I'm torn on that issue because Nintendo gets a ton of free press from that. And you could argue that that's the benefit they receive. They don't need to receive the advertising revenue when they're receiving the the marketing uh, aspect of it all. But anyway, it's that company's product. It's up to them to decide. So uh, the update, though, that Nintendo released was outlining its live streaming policy, which uh, live streaming policy, which now states that. YouTube channels linked to Nintendo's partner program cannot stream any Nintendo game either for monetization or non-monetization purposes. Instead, YouTubers have a couple of options. The easiest, albeit disadvantaged option, instructs YouTubers to stream from a different account not associated with Nintendo's program. So basically what Nintendo said was, if you're part of our YouTuber partner program, you cannot live stream with that same account. You'd have to make a new account that's not connected to their, to that, to that, and then live stream on on your own time, basically. So here's what uh, the full update from Nintendo says: Live streaming on YouTube's on YouTube falls outside the scope of the Nintendo Creators Program. You cannot broadcast content on YouTube Live from the account you've registered to the Nintendo Creators Program. If you plan to broadcast content on YouTube Live, you have a couple of options. First, you can broadcast content on YouTube Live from a channel that is not registered to the Nintendo Creators Program. 
Okay. <laughs> or you can cancel your channel's registration to the Nintendo Creators program and instead register your videos containing Nintendo's IP to the program separately. Videos which had previously been registered through your channel would need to be re-registered individually. So what they're saying is you can submit individual videos. So if you didn't want your whole channel locked down by Nintendo, you could exit their program and then just submit individual videos for part of the partnership program. Um, now, you have to ask yourself why Nintendo's doing this. What what would cause Nintendo to change what they're doing when it comes to content, when it comes to live streaming? Why is live streaming different than video content in their opinion? So uh, as I'm looking down here, they don't give a reason. Uh, they really just kind of said, this is our policy. This is how you have to handle it. Now, <laughs> I would be very, very surprised if this didn't have something to do with the PewDiePie incident from a couple weeks ago. Um, I don't know that. I'm just saying I could totally see Nintendo saying, you know, we can't control people on a live stream. We can't, we can't, we don't know what they're going to do. Uh, as opposed to a video, they could probably review a video or they can take a video down with live streaming. Like it's out there, you know? So I don't know how that's all going to work. And I don't know how their partnership program works. If like you submit, if they look at all your videos before approving them, I'm not quite sure how that works, but it's very uh it's very telling to me i think and that might be more of the fallout from from the live stream pewdiepie incident where he dropped the n-bomb on stream because it not one was it gonna not only was it gonna scare away potential um investors or excuse me advertisers but then you can also see maybe stuff like this like nintendo wants to separate itself from live streaming in general which is obviously not good for anybody um nintendo introduced its partners program back in march Prior to the program, any monetization that came from using Nintendo gameplay footage would go to the company. Through the program, Nintendo agreed to share of these advertising proceeds for any YouTube video or channel containing Nintendo copyrighted content that you register. The program allows YouTubers to submit full channels or specific videos, like I said earlier. The revenue share is 70% for channels and 60% for videos, but that may change, according to Nintendo. Hmm. To join Nintendo's creators program, creators must also be part of YouTube's partners program, meaning channels must have a total of 10,000 public views before partnership can be granted. YouTube's partners program policy came under fire yesterday after YouTube confirmed that external links in end slates on videos would only be included for those in the partners program. So, um, yeah, that's it's that's a weird one. You know, I I don't know why Nintendo's I really do believe it had something to do with that with the um, with the PewDiePie thing live streaming was was in the news in a negative way and it wouldn't surprise you if nintendo changed their policy so that they could reel that back so that they don't have to worry about live streaming they still just have to worry about the youtube videos and the policies they've already been handling so i don't know kind of strange don't really know where nintendo was going with that one but yeah i mean it's nintendo and they've always like before they had this partners program they were just straight claiming rights to all the videos and they weren't allowing people to monetize which again doesn't really make sense to me because how much free press they get from people showing off their games. Like if, if, if PewDiePie plays a game and he's got, you know, 57 million subscribers, if he plays a game, that video gets 2 million views in a day. So you don't want 2 million people watching your product. I mean, that's crazy to me. There's a reason why celebrities get free dresses and free clothes and free watches and everything free because that company wants that celebrity to be seen with their product because that means other people want it because that celebrity had it or liked it 
you know that so that's why when people get all all upset because well a celebrity's got a bunch of money why is he getting stuff for free well it's because he offers something to the advertisers that's one thing i'll never understand about the companies that want to attack the let's players because they're offering something out there and yeah i think you can make a, an argument that some sales are lost to people who watch someone play a game and don't actually play it maybe they don't buy it but the amount of people that see a game and go wow i gotta play this and then they buy it because that i'm I have no hard concrete numbers. I guarantee that just far, far exceeds that. It has to. I mean, it just does. But uh, yeah, so Nintendo being Nintendo, you know, that's not really a, not really a surprise there. So the next story I saw, um, which was really, really bummed me out. This was um, right after the podcast last week. But Volition, which is the company that is responsible for Saints Row. Uh, which I absolutely love, Saints Row 2, 3, and 4 were all incredible. Loved all those games. Um, they most recently released a game called Agents of Mayhem, which to me seemed kind of like a watered-down version of Saints Row. I don't I don't really know why they didn't just make another Saints Row. Maybe they thought the game ran its course. And I guess technically after the fourth game, there wasn't really anywhere else you could go with the Saints Row universe. Uh, but unfortunately, they've been hit with massive layoffs. So there's more than 30 people have been let go um, and that's at a 200-person studio. So that's about 15% of the workforce got released. Uh, so I want to read some of the bits from the article I'm reading here. Um, they have been, uh, let's see, Kotaku originally had the report. Um, a, a, among the reportedly out at the 200-person studio included general manager, Dan Cermak. So I kind of want to get some more info on that. Uh, he, they reached out to him uh, as well as other members of Volition, as well as representatives for its parent company, Deep Silver, which Deep Silver purchased the studio when THQ uh, bankrupt, uh, went bankrupt. Um, under Deep Silver, Volition released Saints Row, Get Out of Hell, and Agents of Mayhem, two titles that suffered poor critical reception. So, you know, it's kind of the rule of twos in the, in the industry. Like, you get one bad, and you get a second bad, and there's not really, there's not a lot of chance to come back from that. Um Let's see. Kotaku sources point to Agents of Mayhem's failure to drum up sales as a reason for the layoffs. There aren't official sales data available, but what has been reported from sites like Steam Spy suggests the game didn't make waves. There were just over 31,000 owners of the PC version, according to the Steam Tracker's numbers, with just 92 concurrent players logging in as of yesterday. Ugh. Yeah, and obviously that's not console sales, and this game probably did better on console than on PC. But that's not very many. And if a game only sold, man, if it sold 31,000 on PC, maybe amongst the consoles, maybe it broke 100,000. But ooh, that's not really, that's not good. That's not good at all. Um, so that sucks. You know, you never want to hear, uh, you never want to hear of a company doing layoffs. I mean, those people have families and they they have, you know, they themselves want to work and, and they're obviously talented. They can make good games, whether this game was a hit or not. And whether artistically the direction didn't go in the right, go the right way, it's still, um, it's still like a, a well-made game. Even if it's not fun, you can tell there's a lot of polish. A lot of people work really hard on it. That's how I should say it without being critical or anything. Like a lot of people work really hard on it. Um, let's see. Uh, Deep Silver did not return any requests for comments. Um, it was, Volition was founded in 1996 and purchased by THQ in 2000. Volition released a steady stream of games in its Saint Row. Oh, that's right. And they did Red Faction. I forgot about that. Um, through the early 
aughts. In 2013, after THQ's bankruptcy, Deep Silver bought Volition along with the Saints Row franchise. Since then, the studios put out Saints Row, Get Out of Hell, and most recently, Agents of Mayhem. So hopefully the people that were let go can find jobs soon. Um, but what's kind of funny about this is this isn't... I, I don't... Okay, this isn't your standard protocol. So normally when a game ends development, you do see some people let go because there isn't always full... 365 days out of the year jobs in all aspects of game development typically a studio that big though will move the person who's done with his part of that project like say a concept artist a concept artist doesn't really work much after the first early alphas of the game and watching their models get made so once they move on from that though they'll start doing concept art for the next project or for multiple projects just to drum up concept art so that people are like oh here's what it could look like if we do the game we're thinking about doing oh we're not going to make that game and then that concept art is lost but there are times when like you know you'll bring in extra level designers maybe for multiplayer and then when you're done with that they're off the project too so it does happen but this one seems to be a lot like 30 people is typically more than you'd usually let go but I don't know. So that, that was that was kind of weird. Uh, it's, it's disappointing, but I heard Agents of Mayhem wasn't very good. I didn't play it, and I loved Saints Row, but Agents of Mayhem didn't appeal to me at all. And I don't know if they were doing this really kind of weird marketing with it. And I don't know. It just didn't it didn't appeal to me, uh, which is unfortunate because maybe the game is really good. It just didn't do anything for me. So I passed on it, and I'm obviously a lot of other people did too. Um, so obviously that's sad, and that sucks. But uh, moving on to some positive stuff. So the SNES Classic just came out last Friday. It finally launched. And two days before it launched, um, some articles came out about a breaking down of the system. So people opened it up and said, ooh, let's take a look what's inside and let's see what's happening. Uh, the, <laughs> the SNES Classic is the exact same hardware as the NES Classic comes right down to it so basically they took the exact same mini computer put it into a super nintendo shell with a little different board so that you could put like the controller ports where they are and that's and that's it it's the exact same thing except preloaded with super nintendo games instead of nes so that that opens up a whole bunch of questions to me so the first one being well why didn't they just release Again, this is this is my idea from the beginning. Why didn't they release a virtual console, right? So why didn't you make a system that you could, like a Roku, where you could download games to it? Since it can obviously play NES and Super Nintendo, and it'll probably play N64 games. So if it could do all that, why didn't you just make a box that could download and play all those, sell the box for 50 bucks with like a few preloaded games, and then charge five bucks a game for everything else? You know, that I mean, that actually would be worse for us as consumers, but it's still it still would have been, I think, a better move for the company to do. So it's the exact same thing, exact same power, everything. So uh, Eurogamer was the one who did the breakdown. So here's what they said. The fact that the SNES Mini runs on the same hardware as its predecessor has a number of implications. Among them, we can expect hackers to be looking to exploit the system in short order to add new games. Exactly what happened with the NES Mini. And secondly, the use of what is essentially the same technology makes it much easier for Nintendo to resume the NES Mini production. So that is good, but that also opens up another few questions. So yes, since it's the exact same hardware, that shows that Nintendo can go back to whoever's manufacturing this for them and say, hey, we want to order a bunch more of these boards, but we'll do the Model A, which has the controller ports a little bit differently, in this shell, in shell A, as opposed to the Super Nintendo being motherboard B with 
uh, Shelby looking like a Super Nintendo. But again, then we argue, why is it taking a year for the NES Mini to come back into stock when they clearly have, they're still making the technology. This is the exact same stuff. Now, you could argue that they're pausing the NES to let the Super Nintendo take over, run its full course, and then bring the NES back to flip on some of those sales. Totally reasonable, totally possible. Probably what's happening. But why can't they run the two products side by side? They're not going to compete with each other. Everybody's going to buy both. Nobody comes into my store and buys a Super Nintendo game and goes, oh, I hate the Nintendo. Like, I'll only buy a Super Nintendo. That, that doesn't happen. People go, I love the Nintendo and the Super Nintendo. Or they were only going to buy the Super Nintendo anyway. Like, they're not going to compete. No one's, and, and they're not expensive enough products where it's like one's going to take over the other. It's just they'd both be great items to have in your office or in your game room. They're small. They're cute. You know, just put them wherever. Um, so yeah, uh, it's the exact same hardware inside the box. Uh, but it, it makes sense from a company perspective because they're trying to, you know, minimal expense for maximum profit. And I'm okay with it. Like, I don't have a problem with them doing this. It just raises a bunch of questions as to availability of the NES classic. Then like, why is it so hard to keep in stock now? Or why is it so hard to bring back? Or why are you waiting a year to bring it back when you could just, it's essentially here. Like you have a whole bunch, but again, they're focusing on the super Nintendo classic and let's be happy with that. Um, and if you don't know the NES classic is coming back into production next summer, they, they recently said back when they announced right before the SNES classic came out, they announced that the super Nintendo classic was going to be way more in supply. Oh, and by the way, we're also re-releasing the NES classic next summer. Okay. Bye. Like it was very, very strange press release, but it was good. Obviously all good things. Um, but, but interesting, you know, because you'd expect it to be a little different. Uh, and if the internals are the same, hopefully that means there's still enough internal memory. And I would assume whoever's modding this would be able to put NES games on the Super Nintendo classic. So if you could have every NES and every Super Nintendo on the Super Nintendo classic, that'd be awesome. But again, you could do all this with the microcomputer anyway and make the shell whatever you want. So you don't really have to do this plus it has limited um, amounts of memory so you couldn't put every game ever on there like if you got an atari emulator working other things you couldn't you couldn't put every game on there because it doesn't have the space for that sadly i don't even know if you could fit every super nintendo game on there because those are much larger in size than the nes games are so it'd be uh be a very very different kind of experience i guess for that uh and then uh let's see here um, I, yeah, so this story, this is, eh, this is a weird one, but uh, let's hit it. So player unknowns battlegrounds is the latest victim of what we call review bombs on steam. So if you don't know what a review bomb is, typically it's the same thing happens a lot everywhere. It happens on Amazon it happens on things when people disagree with something you say, or when people are mad about something, you get just flooded with negative reviews. So say, whether you believe with uh, the same things as they do or not, say a conservative writes a book on Amazon, says something very controversial. A bunch of people will go to that book's page, give it a bunch of one star reviews and trash the book's rating because they don't agree with that person. What they said it has nothing to do with the quality of the product just does. So apparently, and I didn't, this isn't happening in the U S but apparently in the Chinese market, um, player knowns battleground. Uh, let's see here. I want to get this right because, uh, I want to kind of talk about, yeah, okay, so the in China, they're adding in-game advertisements. 
So the focus of Player Rage appears to be an advertisement for a Chinese virtual private network, so a VPN service, which is showing up on the game's home screen. Polygon has reached out to the developer for comment. And this is not the first time that Battlegrounds has included sponsored content in its menu screen. During an invitational tournament broadcast live from Gamescom in Germany, developers at Bluehole included the logo of its sponsor, ESL. Tags for ESL were also displayed on buildings in-game during the same time period. Uh, Bluehole recently announced they were spinning off into a separate company, PUBG Corp, exclusively to work on Battlegrounds. They're also courting Chinese megacorp Tencent for investment. So basically, and Tencent is a company that specializes in free-to-play games and then charges you for ridiculous things like micro microtransactions. So you have to argue or you have to wonder is is PUBG Corp, you know, is, is Bluehole basically trying to make the game into an advertising source of advertising revenue. So they could say, Hey, we'll put, we'll put a McDonald's into the game. If McDonald's pays us a million dollars, you know, as crazy as that sounds, or we'll put billboards up that have VPN services or whatever. We'll put those in the game, you know, as long as we get paid for that, which in a free to play game, I can, I can see that I can, I can, I can agree with that argument because in in a free-to-play game, you have to make revenue somewhere. And that's your trade-off. If you're playing a game for free, there has to be some trade-off. But in a game that you're paying $30 for in early access, I don't expect that sort of thing. It's just like how I, I, I really get upset about Shadow of War adding all the microtransactions in at a full $60 game. This is the same idea. Like, you don't need this revenue to be successful. Your game, and like, obviously, Battlegrounds has sold like a bajillion copies so they really don't need the revenue from this. It's just another way to make more money. Now, if they're looking for an investment from Tencent, it's most likely why they're doing this because Tencent is all about this sort of stuff. This is how they make their money. So they might look more appealing to a company like that if they say we have unique and different ways of doing advertising in our game. Now, at first when I read this and it said there was a sponsored content on its menu screen, I was like, who cares? Games advertise all the time on there for their own stuff. So like Rocket League advertises on there for loot crates or, or cars that are coming out that you can buy for loot crates. I mean, yeah, they're advertising for themselves, but it's still an advertisement. Or they'll advertise that there's an esports event going on and to click over and watch it. And that seems to be acceptable to everybody, except when it's another company buying into the game. It's not right for some reason, right? That seems kind of hypocritical on our part, right? So I didn't mind that. But however, I do start to get upset when they start talking about putting stuff in game on the side of buildings. If you start seeing company logos on the side of buildings, a game like Battlegrounds is meant to be really immersive and they go for realistic graphics, realistic physics, realistic shooting. And then you're going to have spray painted billboards on the side of buildings. The whole thing just kind of rubs me the wrong way. And uh, which is also funny because most recently they also announced that they're working with Sony to bring player unknown battleground to ps4 so at first what you're thinking though is you know whatever who cares it's it's you know it's advertising it's what they do but i think more my issue i kind of wanted to talk about here was the idea of review bombs in themselves um i understand that it's a way for a lot of people to view their distaste of something and i just as long as you purchase the item and you review it and you're being honest about it i don't consider that a review bomb but the problem is a bunch of people, and these are people, I believe on Steam, you have to buy the game to rate it. Yeah, that's that's how it works. You have to buy the game. So people who have bought the game are the ones who are going on there and, and downvoting it. But these are also people 
that have probably played the game for two or 300, 400 hours. So can you really give the game a thumbs down because of that, even though you've enjoyed the game for how many hundreds of hours before that? So I don't know. Again, I'm saying what I always say every week. We need to be better than that. Like we shouldn't just pout about something and that's not the way to do it. Um, or maybe it is, I guess. How else would you get the word across? I don't know. I don't have the right answer for this one. I just know that I don't like the idea of a, of a game getting dumped on negatively because of something it did that doesn't pertain to what you're talking about. If they all of a sudden came out and said, hey, we're taking out all the guns in PUBG and you can only run around with a machete, I could see everyone changing their review to a downvote and be like, this game used to be great. And then they took away all the guns and now it's really stupid. Like that makes sense. But really the advertisements, as, as annoying as they are, I don't see them affecting gameplay in such a way where the game experience has changed, if that makes sense to everybody. So I don't know. But review bombs, whether it's on Amazon, there, PlayStation Network, wherever it is, it's just it's just not good. Like it's, it's not, if it's, if it's inaccurate, it's not fair to that product, whether you like it or not. And I really don't like it when they do it on Amazon to like a book of somebody you may not agree with, whether it's a, a liberal or a conservative, or if it's politics or if it's sports, whatever it is, I just don't like the idea that people would, and, and Amazon, I don't believe you have to own the product to give it a review. I, so people will go on there and you'll get all these reviews of a product you didn't even buy on Amazon. So you can, you could get like the internet brigade, to flood over there and give it 15,000 one stars and it maybe had 10,000 five stars and it just became a two or two and a half out of five star book or a game or whatever it is. And I just don't like that, especially if it's people who haven't played it. Cause a lot of people like, I don't know how to say so insulting people, but like a lot of people out there are just like blind followers, right? Like, like the people listening to this, I'd sure hope I'm not talking about you because I want, I want people to be like educated. I, I like to tell people what I think, but I want you to make up your mind on things for yourself. I don't want you just to, to take what I say as gospel. Like you need to do your own homework. You need to have your own opinions, just like the, with the Commodore 64 earlier I talked about and with everything else, like you need to have your own opinion. And sometimes a lot of people don't have their own opinion. They just regurgitate the things they hear. They don't form their own opinion there or their opinions formed by what other people's opinions are. And that I think is what's sad when you get a bunch of people who may never even have any experience with the product. They just saw a tweet or something about someone they really respect saying this book sucked or I don't like this person. I don't like this book. It just came out and then they don't say anything else. And this person goes, all right, well, let's go downvote it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get that kind of mob mentality. And, and again, we're better than that and we need to be better than that. But the latest victim of the steam review bomb was player knows battlegrounds because of Chinese advertising. And I don't even know, are they all Chinese people that are giving it down votes? It might even be American people who are trying to make a point and say, look, if you bring this in-game ad to the U S servers, we're not going to deal with it. We're not going to put up with it. And that might be their way of like early protesting, but is that fair to, to give it? That's a good question to ask. And I'm not saying it's, it is, or it isn't. I'm just saying what a good question to think about. Is it fair to trash something as a way to protest it? when it's still technically delivering to you the full experience that got its thumbs up in the first place. Hmm. An interesting conundrum, I suppose. And then lastly, the last story I want to talk about before I just go ranting about Cuphead, which is one of the best games I've played all year, um, is that Nintendo announced officially that the Wii Shop channel, uh, which was for, let's see, uh, the Wii Shop channel which was the Wii's virtual console, so just the regular Wii, is shutting down in January of 2019, and at that point, you will not be able to download any of the games you have once had, and obviously, you won't be able to buy anything anymore. So at first, you think, oh, the Wii Shop channel is shutting down. Well, it's January of 2019. I mean, it's a whole year and a half away. You know, we got plenty of time. 
and you're not wrong uh except that so you have time i guess to go download all these games buy a big sd card and bring them if you're still rocking the wii like make sure you go out there and get them so psa load up your wii download everything you bought to it but here was an interesting article on polygon actually that i i was more the point of it which leads into a bigger discussion later on but the wii shop channel shutdown will also take 200 classic games with it that will be gone for good and that was interesting to me because I always thought that the Wii Virtual Console, that all of that was on the 3DS and the Wii U natively. Not like not the 3DS necessarily, but the, especially the Wii U. And and actually, now that I think of it, the Wii U, is it shutting down for the Wii U too? Um, it is. Okay, so the Wii, the Wii Shop channel, this is shutting down for the Wii U as well. So this is only available. So there is no Virtual Console on the Switch. So unless they, re, they open it on the Switch and bring these back, here's a list of games that will no longer be made available digital in any other form. So some of these games have been re-released in other ways. But here's some of the list of games that have been gone for good. So I want to go down this list a little bit very quickly and talk about some of the big ones. So it's... Because it says the list of Wii Shop exclusive virtual console games is 226 titles long. Uh, 226... Let's see. Uh, and then a few of them, though, they are noting, have been added to the Super Nintendo Classic. So they've made a note of those, but they're not technically available for download on any other console. Um, so basically what they're saying is the 3DS shop will still be up there, but they are not. They haven't added every Wii Virtual Console game to the 3DS shop yet, is what they're saying. So, um, quickly. So I'm just going to highlight some of the big ones. ActRaiser. Um, Beyond Oasis. That's a great game, too. Blades of Steel. Bomberman 93. Bonk's Adventure. Bonk's Revenge. Bonk 3. Boogerman, Boogerman's a great game too. Bubble Bobble, Burger Time, Castlevania Rondo of Blood, um, Chrono Trigger. I mean, how big is that? Uh, Cruising USA, uh, Darius Twin, Doctor Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. Even though that's available a million other ways from Sega themselves. Uh, Earthworm Jim One and Two, uh, Eternal Champions, Final Fantasy 2 and 3, even though Final Fantasy 3 was added to the Super Nintendo Classic. Uh, Final Fantasy Mystic Quest are not available anywhere else for download. So I think what they mean is basically these aren't available on the 3DS. Uh, until the Switch Virtual Console comes out, which if it does and it includes all these, this might be for not, might be not worth worrying about. But as of right now, these things might be gone. Uh, JJ and Jeff, that's a really crappy TurboGrafx-16 game. Um, Musha, which is an incredible shmup for the Genesis Metal Slug, one two four one two and four <laughs> um mega turrican uh monster world four i mean this is some incredible games here ogre battle march of the black queen fantasy star one two three and four um god there's some good stuff in here Ristar, scat samurai ghost samurai showdown uh we've got sonic sonic spinball sonic the hedgehog three sonic three how's that not available anymore streets of rage three Super Adventure Island 1 and 2, Super Air Zonk, Last Blade 1 and 2, Toe Jam and Earl, Toe Jam and Earl, Planet on Funkatron, Wonder Boy 3, 3, Wonder Boy Monsterland, Wonder Boy Monsterland, um, Ease Book 1 and 2, Xanax, Zaxxon, Zombies Ate My Neighbors. That's huge. That's a ton of games if, if they just disappear. Now, I don't think that's actually going to happen. I think that the Switch, Switch is going to come out with a virtual console, but if it's how it worked in the past you won't have access to those games without buying them again. So this would be the third time some people have had to buy these games. So the reason I brought up this story, though, is this goes to a bigger point, which is how annoying and frustrating 
virtual games are. Because at any point, at any time, any company can cease the license which they allowed you. Because you're not buying a game. When you buy a digital game, you don't buy the game. You're buying the right to play that game. And even in the contract you sign when you purchase that game, they say that at any time they want, they can revoke that right to play that game. So you don't have any rights uh, to, to maintain. So say Nintendo decides, well, you know, we don't want to pay Square to relicense Chrono Trigger. So even though you bought it, we're taking it off the store. And if you don't have it downloaded, you can't get it anymore. And now usually when these things are happening, there's a window where they try to get as much press out there as they can so that everybody knows to go get it. But I don't know. It, it, this is one of those things that this is this is what's preventing dig, all digital from taking over right now is because a lot of companies don't stick around and we don't trust a lot of that stuff. Even Sony was struggling as a company for a while. They broke off the PlayStation division to its own. It's the only part of Sony that was profitable for a while was the PlayStation division. What if Sony sank and took the PlayStation division with them? All those digital games you owned and that store closes down, that's it. Um, say, and this is less realistic, but say one day uh, valve decides to buy nintendo never gonna happen let's just say it does so they do that and then valve goes well we're gonna integrate all of the nintendo virtual console into the steam library but you have to rebuy all those games because you have to make a steam account and so games you already purchased and thought you owned you don't you you had your license to play them revoked and then you could, they would allow you to repurchase the license um, again. So I look at stuff like that, and that that's what bothers me about an all digital future, is that you've got this ridiculous sense of entitlement by the game companies saying that like it's your right to play these games, not that you actually own them. You know, I look around my game room here quickly, and I've got I, I've broken. I've got over a thousand games. I broke the thousand mark for the number of games I have now, ever since rebuilding my collection after opening game trade. And I look around and I think I can play all these games at any time I want. And I look at my steam library and at any time, maybe valve is, which is a private company still, maybe they decide to sell off to somebody or they do something. And then that company goes, you know, we're not, we don't think the steam brand is good. We're going to go with our own proprietary whatever. And then Steam is gone. And then what happens? Then all your stuff. Now, is that realistic? No. But that could be realistic in 10 years. You don't know what companies are around. Like, look at companies that were around forever that aren't around today. Uh, THQ is not around anymore. Acclaim is not around anymore. Um, Sega somehow survived. Um, Capcom survived. But a lot of these companies that were huge at one point, are not huge anymore. Atari, great example. Atari was huge for a long time and they're not anymore. So anyway, I, I think this just kind of sparked the conversation again of how, how awful digital games are and how bad they are for us and how I hope that we don't go to that all digital future. And there are uh, shining lights of hope. Like there are games like limited run games and other companies prove that there is a massive market for physical games especially with the PS4 because Sony didn't put a limit on the number or didn't put a, a minimum limit on the number of copies of a game you can print. So that helped a lot because you have all these indie developers making two to 5,000 copies of a game and selling it on Amazon. There's tons of 20 and $30, like weird quirky PS4 games that are getting physical prints and they're so they're selling because people want physical items. So that's really cool. That gives me hope for the future, but there will be a time when the console makers realize that once there's a good enough in internet infrastructure in the U.S. where everyone has high-speed internet and everyone has good internet, there's going to be a time where they try to push an all-digital thing on us, where they say, 
hey, you have to buy you have to buy this game digital or you can't play it. And that's really going to start to be like, man, you know, for me as a collector, it's going to be tough because I'm still going to want to play new games. But to know that at any time I can lose access to those games, it's going to make choosing what console you buy much more important in the future. Like what company now is going to have the staying power in five or 10 years that I want to keep these things, you know, and, and with hard drive sizes, you know, with game sizes increasing and hard drive sizes not increasing fast enough to match those. So if I have the PlayStation 5, maybe it comes with a two terabyte hard drive. But if all the games are 500 gigs to play, which now is not that much of a stretch since a lot of games are 100 gigabytes now, say that you're still four or five games at a time. The rest you would normally download when you wanted to play them. But if what if that service goes offline and you can't? It's just all interesting things to think about, you know, just some things that, uh, that we really need to put into perspective when it comes to the digital. And, and I'm not saying that we buck that trend. You know, I'm not, I'm not like that old fogey. Who's like, Oh man, refrigerators killed the, the milkman industry. Cause the milkman didn't have to come to your house every day because we had refrigerators to store our own milk. I mean, it's, I'm not like that, but there's nothing wrong with physical media and digital media would be great if there was some sort of assurances or if all of a sudden there's some breakthrough in storage technology and you can download like 10 teraflops or whatever and and have all that stuff saved at one point and everything runs smooth and you never lose it and it's solid state and nothing corrupts okay sign me up yeah you know it's just not not feasible at this point in time one day it probably will be but you know not really this time so that was my little rant about uh about virtual console shutting down and and uh digital only games and then lastly i just want to take a few minutes to talk about cuphead uh so i'm, I'm gonna forego my game recommendation my retro game recommendation and recommend this game to you because it is one of the best games i played this year i have to look back because i remember playing a lot of great games this year obviously legend of zelda breath of the wild uh neo near and um horizon zero dawn but this game cuphead it it's what, what I find as a gamer who's been playing games for a very long time, I'm often looking for something unique and different. And that's something that I don't get very often. And so a game like Cuphead comes along and you've got this really beautiful animation style. Not that people haven't done cartoony before, but this looks like a 1930s Steamboat Willie, early Disney cartoon sort of vibe to it. And I just absolutely love it. And it's great. And then when I actually played the game though, it's infinitely harder than I thought it would be. I really did not see that difficulty coming in, which is a really cool, good thing because it makes the game last longer and it's making me cherish it more. And it's making me want to go back to it as masochistic as I'm being about it. I've already racked up over 150 deaths in the game and I've enjoyed every one of them. Now I get frustrated obviously because the fun comes from beating the level, not from dying on the level. But What's interesting about Cuphead is originally the game started off, and I actually just learned this uh, from my buddy Jordan yesterday, but originally it was more of a boss rush mode where every level was just a boss fight. And they, they seemingly added variations later because people felt like it was just a boss rush game instead of being a like a platformer shooter. And so uh, Jordan argued that he felt like the run and gun levels were a little tacked on. And I actually disagree. I thought they were a nice breakup of the monotony and they were a way to gain more coins and just a way to like, it was a little less stressful to me because it was it was a lot going on, but it was it was fun. It was progressing through a level as opposed to just a boss fight with different phases. So for me, and it's a different experience for everybody, but for me, I really liked it. So I was very very happy with uh, with, with those levels. Um, and there's three stages and then a final casino area. I've I'm on the third stage now, 
And I might beat that today. I don't know. I've got a lot of stuff going on today, but I just want to get back to it. And I've been streaming and recording the entire thing. So I have like my full Cuphead playthroughs that I can, you know, and I, I want to do like a death montage because I've died so many times and the look on my face half the time when I die is like, you would totally just laugh at how stupid I look because it gets frustrating. But with all that being said, just an incredible game. It's, it's beautiful looking. The music has got like that old, like, you know, big band kind of, you know, jazzy kind of flavor to it, which is just awesome. It fits the game perfectly. Uh, sound effects, animations, everything is just gorgeous in the game. Uh, if I had to pick it apart for anything, I, I really can't except that it's difficult and that's not a bad thing. I would say if I, if I had to put a number on it, I would say less than 50% of the people that play this game will finish it as crazy as that sounds less than 50%, I think will beat this game. Um, I'm very curious to see like what the stats are for who gets like the final trophies or steam achievements, because I want to know the percentage of people that are actually finishing the game because I don't think it's very high, but the game is incredible. If you have an Xbox one, you can get it digitally. Or if you have a, a PC with steam, you can buy it digitally. It's not coming to PS4. Unfortunately, there was some exclusivity rights with Microsoft on that one, but you can get it on steam, get it on Xbox one. It is worth every penny It's only $20. They could have charged full price for it probably. And I probably, I mean, I still would have bought it, but it's definitely worth the, the asking price. And man, it's just incredible. that. The boss fights are unique. One thing that AI does very well in that game is it's it varies itself a lot. So you'll learn a boss and then you'll get ready to go in there and he'll do something different or something will react differently than it did before. So you can't just memorize boss patterns. I mean, you do to an extent, obviously, but there's more variety. It's not just one boss who has three different moves and you just have to memorize which one of the three moves does what. Sometimes each boss will have different phases and each phase will have different moves. And so like you feel like you're trying to memorize this entire boss fight just to beat it and then you move on to another boss fight that's completely different in a totally different way but all excellent all great stuff um have to play it it was just incredible and if you get a chance to i mean you can watch my live streams i've got them archived on youtube and you can watch my greg plays which was the first 40 minutes which i actually got out in the first 40 minutes only died 11 times i was pretty proud of that since though i've really died a lot uh, but game's absolutely incredible. It's a must play or at least watch. If you don't have a, if access to buying it on either of those platforms, watch my videos, please. And just what an incredible effort. And then I know they're working on a sequel right now. So hopefully that one, they won't have any restrictions because Microsoft helped fund the development of the first one. So if they don't do that on the second one, or maybe Sony helps kick some in so that they get uh, access to it as well. Cause it is an incredible game. I'd also like to see a physical print of that game. I don't think we'll see one on Xbox one. But I'm hoping that if the game comes out somewhere else, like on PS4 eventually for a sequel, we will get a physical hard copy of that because that would be just awesome. Um, but that's the showgram today, everybody. I really, really appreciate everybody listening as always. You guys are great. Um, if you get a chance, if you're listening to this on iTunes, if you could hop over to the YouTube channel, it, uh, you can type in droprate.life. That will take you to our YouTube page. And if you could subscribe on there, that's really where we're pushing our focus. We're so proud of ourselves. In the last six months, we're already up to almost 300 subscribers, which is more than we anticipated, uh, which was awesome because we were really growing really slow and we've really hit our stride, I think, with a lot of great stuff. And we love doing this content for you and we just want to keep getting more popular so we can share it with more people. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DropRateGreg. Uh, or like I said, follow, uh, you can subscribe on iTunes. If you haven't, you can subscribe on there, listen to it on SoundCloud, wherever you got it. Obviously you're listening to it if you're hearing this. So I appreciate however you found us. And as always, everyone have a great day. We'll talk to you again soon.